One of my favorite things to do is to title sermons. And as I read the opening lines from Matthew's gospel, I couldn't help but start rapping a certain song from Drake. Started at the bottom, now we hear, yeah. You know that song, right? We all know that song. Um, so because of that moment of inspiration, I decided to call this message, started from the bottom, what would Drake say about the birth of Jesus? How many of you have heard the song from Drake, right? I, I know I make an assumption that everybody has heard the song, but reality is, is that probably you haven't heard the song. And even if you haven't heard the song, one, listen to the song, and you will hear Drake brag about coming from humble beginnings to make millions of dollars. And in essence, the song is about moving from being and feeling powerless to attaining the means to be powerful. This is the dream that many people have in society, to be powerful. The church far too often in history has sought to be powerful. Christendom was about power. Much of what we see on television being passed off as Christian is about power. But I think this is based off a misunderstanding of power. We mistake power for significance. When God's people seek power, we actually lose significance. Power negates presence because power must be defended and maintained. And thus, it is always defended against those who would seek to take it away. We see this again and again with people who attain power. They are forced to insulate themselves from others for protection. Try to visit the president at the White House and see just how insulated power is. The reality is, is that the church was never meant to be powerful. Followers of Jesus were never meant to seek power, nor is the kingdom of God about asserting power. The fact is that Jesus, his life, ministry, death is the antithesis to power. Maybe you've heard of the kingdom of God referred to as the upside down kingdom, where the first shall be last, where weakness is strength, where the meek shall inherit the earth, where we lay down your, our lives in order to find them, where we pick up the cross and follow after the crucified one, Jesus. So when Jesus raps these words from Drake, started at the bottom, now my whole team here, it's not about ascending to greatness through power, but rather it's about participating in the resurrection through the descending into the powerlessness of Jesus. In Jesus' genealogy, there are five women mentioned, Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, the wife of Uriah, who, we, who is Bathsheba, and Mary. First, we have to understand that this was written in a different day and age, and we have to judge the text based on that. So today, the idea that women would be included in someone's genealogy is a given. But in the first century, it would have been unheard of. It would have been a revolutionary act. Because this never happened, the people hearing the genealogy would immediately be aware of the five women's presence in the genealogy, and they would also know their significance to the story. Tamar was a woman whose husbands, all the sons of Judah except one, had died. In the, in, in the time when this story took place, it was tradition and familial duty for a brother to marry the widow of his brother if she had not already had children. It was a matter of honor for the widow and a matter of provision. Judah kept stringing Tamar along, saying that she would eventually marry the youngest son, but never followed through on his promise, leaving Tamar shamed and without provision. So Tamar, powerless to effect change through the proper channels, took it, took it into her own hands to effect change. She pretended to be a prostitute, slept with the father-in-law, Judah, and took his staff, belt, and collateral as payment. She did this to get pregnant, and in a world where a woman's worth was based 
on her having an heir for the household, Judah had denied her this when he denied her marriage to his son. And so at the end of the story, it is Judah who is seen as the one who is wrong and Tamar is looked upon as the one that is righteous for attaining an heir despite the wrongs done to her. And again, we see this as a barbaric story, right? And we're not questioning that. But the point we are meant to take away from this is that the powerless Tamar made a way and God uses this way as the backstory to God's incarnation, to God becoming human, to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Rahab was a prostitute in the city of Jericho, a city that was destroyed in Israel's conquest of the land of Canaan. She was also not a Hebrew. She was a Canaanite, a people who were described as evil and detestable, you know, the kind of language that one uses when dealing with conquest. Rahab protected two Israelite spies from capture and was saved when the city fell. This woman, Rahab, is also used in the backstory of God's incarnation, God becoming human, to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Ruth was another woman who was powerless. She was an outsider, a foreigner, who had no rights and no place in Israelite society at the time of this story. But again, her story is one of making a way when no way existed. And God uses Ruth's story as part of the backstory for God's incarnation, God becoming human, to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. The story of Uriah's wife, who was not mentioned by name, is perhaps one of the most tragic stories of the powerlessness being crushed by power. Uriah's wife's name was Bathsheba, and she had an affair with King David. But can you really call it an affair when power summons you and you cannot say no? The result of this affair was a pregnancy, and in order to hide the affair, King David murdered Uriah and married Bathsheba. And again, God uses this tragic story as part of the backstory to God's incarnation, to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And the last woman mentioned is Mary, the mother of Jesus, who was an unwed teenager and became pregnant through the power of the Holy Spirit and gave birth to Jesus. The incarnation of God, what the message translation describes as God moving into the neighborhood, came from the most unlikely of places, the least powerful of places. Jesus' lineage, although derived from the kings of Israel, is also full of powerless challenging the powerful. The stories of these women in Jesus' genealogy highlight this fact. Jesus was born in a small shepherd town called Bethlehem. His birth in Bethlehem, like his ancestor David, is also a challenge to power from the powerlessness. Bethlehem is located just outside of Jerusalem and was a town that was meant to serve the powerful as it is with things that lay in the shadows of power. Power tries to crush Jesus as an infant and his family flees to Egypt. The town of Nazareth, where Jesus grew up, is conscripted to build Herod's city called Caesarea. Herod was the ruler of the area where Jesus grew up. Jesus himself could have possibly been conscripted into Herod's workforce, just as his father would have been. And as a child, Jesus would have grown up in the shadow of that power. In Matthew eleven nineteen, Jesus recounts how he and his ministry were described by the religious elite. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Jesus' triumphal entry is a direct challenge to Pilate's entry on the other side of Jerusalem, another scene of powerlessness confronting the powerful. Jesus rode into town on the back of a donkey while Pilate rode into town on a war horse, surrounded by a legion of soldiers. 
Jesus was hailed as a liberator, while Pilate was hailed as an oppressor. At the end of Matthew, at the culmination of Jesus being crucified on the cross, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? An agonizing statement of abandonment while being crushed by power. But the story doesn't end with Jesus being crushed by power. No, the story continues, and Jesus is raised from the dead, an act in history that we call the resurrection. And the resurrection is not the end of the story as well, but rather a moment when the story changes from powerlessness to possibility. We've all heard the saying, you gotta fight fire with fire. That is the kind of response we expect from power. But if your house starts to burn, the fire department doesn't show up with flamethrowers. No, they show up and they blast the fire with water. Or maybe as Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. said, darkness cannot drive out darkness, only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate, only love can do that. And I would add to that sentiment, power as well. Power places Jesus on a Roman cross as a display of look what power can do to you if you get in the way of power. Possibility, not power, is revealed in the resurrection. The most significant act in history is revealed in the resurrection. In the resurrection, we see the defeat of power through the utter powerlessness of Jesus' death on a cross. The good news of the birth of Jesus is that power, economic, societal, cultural, racial, gender, sexual, the good news is that power will do its worst to crush and oppress, and no matter what, the possibility of the resurrection will always win out.